0: Sex, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the speculative interdimensional vehicle, Sex in Space. Its mission, to explore new points of view, to seek out fresh opinions, to boldly go where so many have gone before, and still somehow manage to totally miss the point. Subscribe to Sex in Space wherever quality podcasts are found. Hi there, I'm Toshi and welcome back to Sex and Space. We're here continuing to explore sex across all of its infinite dimensions. I hope everyone out there is doing just great. Whether you're stepping into this podcast for the first time or you're a seasoned explorer of our cosmic conversations, we're excited to have you join us. If you're tuning in on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or any other platform, we sincerely thank you for joining us. Don't forget to show your support by liking, rating and subscribing. For more great Sex and Space content, head on over to TikTok and Instagram where you can search for us using our handle at sexandspace.com. That's sexandspace, D-O-T-C-O-M. We love to hear from our listeners and engage with our community and your feedback means the world to us. We're all on this journey together, so please feel free to reach out in any way that you like. Now let's get into an awesome interview. I was lucky enough to chat with Dr. Danielle Jones, who you may know from her social media as Mama Dr. Jones. Dr. Jones is a board-certified OBGYN who in 2021 moved from Texas in the US to Invercargill in New Zealand. She has a following of over 2.5 million across her various platforms where she makes content about all things periods, pregnancy, gynecologic health and sex education. Let's jump in. I thought I would um, start by asking if you can maybe tell us a bit about where you're from and how you grew up.
1: Sure. So originally, I am from Texas in the US, and I grew up in a small town, about 14,000 people in kind of rural West Texas, and it was, you know, the... 90s in the middle of the Bible Belt purity culture. Uh, We were very ingrained in the Baptist church and then eventually into non-denominational churches. But going to church twice a week was like part of my life, most of my life. Um, Yeah, so very rural, religious, small town, West Texas in the 90s. um, And that probably gives most people at least a general concept of kind of where I'm at as far as the kind of unlearning that I had to do over my life.
0: Your beliefs have sort of changed quite a bit over time. Do you think that you could talk us through that journey?
1: Sure. So, you know, I I always kind of hesitate to say that they've changed as much as, as I got older, I started developing my own beliefs rather than ones that somebody gave me as a child. Uh, It wasn't, you know, to be fair, because I know my parents listen to a lot of things that I do online. I would never place it on them. My mother is a nurse and is very progressive and raised me to be open-minded and to approach the world with kindness and um, kind of flexibility. And she has done the same, but we are both, all of us, a product of the environment and the culture that we grew up in. So I think I always had a little bit of, in the back of my head, not really, not really like fully buying into the beliefs that I held, because again, they felt like they had been given to me. Um, But certainly was a process of, you know, we had at one point been extremely right wing. I would have considered myself pro-life, although I don't know if I would have believed that like deep down, I would have said that because it wasn't allowed to be anything other than that. Uh, and then it was just really uncomfortable to even broach the idea of maybe I don't actually believe the things coming out of my mouth because I just was never allowed to do that. You know, again, not from my parents, but just from a general cultural standpoint of fitting in is really important, particularly when you're living in small town Texas. And that's very ostracizing. And you don't want to be the person that is, you know, the crazy kid. So I don't know that I spent much time really thinking thinking about it as I went through uni and things like that. It was just kind of one of those things. And I I wasn't an advocate. I wasn't in medicine. I wasn't interested in getting involved in any of this. And then when I got to medical school, I still was fairly uncomfortable with the idea of like getting involved in any of the pro-choice groups. But I also was like, mm, I'm not really sure I'm comfortable being around all the pro-life groups either. And I kind of got to a point where I was like, I just don't really like these boxes. And it's a bit different here, I think, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, because it's not quite as much. I've just noticed that people's politics and beliefs are much less like a part of their core identity. Like it's just something that you have. But at home, like your stance on everything is like a part of you. And so having changes in that or being outwardly or publicly vocal about a belief that, you know, a bunch of your family or friends don't hold, doesn't just like mean, oh yeah, that's our friend who just thinks something different. It's awesome. Oh, something happened to her and you know, now she's, now she's pro-choice and you know, it's, it's a whole thing. And so I just kind of ignored it, but in the back of my head, I was like, I feel like there's something here that I need to work through. I need to, you know, tackle. I don't know how I feel. And kind of, that's how I went through medical school. And honestly, even the first bit of my residency, I was like, I know I'm not against this as far as abortion. You know, we're going to talk about all kinds of things, but uh, as far as abortion, because that's the most easily discussed one, you know, with my field of medicine at the moment. But I also, I don't think I'm at a point where I can like vocally say how I feel about anything. And then as I started meeting people who were ending very wanted pregnancies due to lethal anomalies... I had no choice but to really tackle my own feelings if I was to give care to patients that I felt was appropriate and fair to them on the worst day of their life. And I started seeing this pattern of even these very conservative, you know, Christian small town Texas people who would come to me and say, I think this is the most humane thing to do. Two weeks ago, I would have said ending this pregnancy is murder. But I can't put my child through being born with a condition that will kill it, you know, in X amount of time. It's just not what I can do. And I thought, like, OK, there's something here because we all have these big beliefs. But once we're really tasked with a problem that affects us as individuals, they're flexible. And so in my mind, I started thinking, like, we have flexible thinking towards these things but why are we only exercising it when it affects us individually and that was kind of a turning point for me as I have to address this because I have a voice and as I started to build a platform I very much became like okay everybody should have autonomy over their body there is absolutely no reason that you should be forced to keep someone else alive we don't do that for anyone else You are not forced even to, my own child could need a blood transfusion and I wouldn't be forced to give them blood transfusion to keep them alive. There's no other scenario where people are forced to use their body to keep someone else alive against their will. And so as I developed those feelings, I got a little bit more confident in talking about them in my personal life, but I still wasn't ready to talk about it on the internet because I had a fairly big platform and I still lived in small town Texas. And that's honestly dangerous at this point. Um, as far as people either deciding that they don't want you to be their doctor or which now I'm like, whatever, that's fine. You can find somebody else. I'm sure like, I have no problem with that at the time it was a lot. And just in regards to physical violence and gun violence, it didn't feel safe for me to talk about that publicly. But after I left that town in that practice, I was able to more vocally talk about it. And honestly, what I have found is the more I've talked about it, the more I've been able to really shift my perspective and actually just figure out what I actually believe, figure out how I feel. And so I really encourage anybody who grew up in an environment like that, or even with these beliefs that maybe they didn't choose for themselves, but are there and they've just never tackled them, that just talk about it, find somewhere safe to talk about it. You know, listen to some of my videos where I talk about it, because what I found to be happening is it was uncomfortable for me to address how I felt. So much so that I didn't know how I felt because I just wasn't talking about it anywhere. And I think that hearing people's stories and learning about these things on a scientific level and a medical level is really helpful. And then having those conversations is a good way to kind of tease out in your brain, okay, how do I unlearn things people told me I had to believe and really figure out what do I believe?
0: And going into medical school, was it something that you considered might happen? Like you might have to rethink these beliefs that have been given to you?
1: I think by the time I got to medical school I didn't I I think I just didn't have any beliefs like I hadn't reassessed and like decided how I feel but I also definitely was not like on board with any like controlling or I think at that point I I was probably saying something like you know oh I would never have an abortion but I don't think the government should be in control of that so uh, it was like an an out right because Do I actually know I would never have an abortion? I think that my experience in medicine has told me that none of us actually know that until we are faced with a horrible situation that we've never thought could even happen. But I think that was kind of where I was. So I don't know that I consciously thought like I'll have to address this, especially because I didn't know I would do obstetrics and gynecology as my field. Um, But I certainly wasn't like at a place where I was coming out of high school, just really strongly believing that nobody should ever be allowed to have abortion ever. Mm.
0: And so in terms of your content creation, what led you to become a sex educator online? Yeah, I think
1: that was just kind of a natural um, move through my field, right? So I, I'm just passionate about pregnancy and uh, period education, and I just love my job. I love what I do. I think I have the coolest job in the world. I think anybody who's ever watched my videos knows that I'm not just making these videos because oh, I can, you know, make YouTube videos. It's because I truly love this and I want to instill in other people a desire to learn about these things that a lot of us have been told our whole lives we're not really allowed to like talk about it publicly. And the natural kind of next step of that was, okay, I'm on, I think before TikTok, I wasn't really doing much sex education necessarily. It was more like periods, pregnancy, you know, I guess periods is kind of sex ed, but whatever. But when TikTok came out, and I was probably one of the first five doctors using TikTok, and I thought like, oh, these are children on this app. And when I was seeing who was there and what they were talking about and then seeing what was going on in the US public education system with sex education being all but obliterated from a lot of the conservative states, I was like, I have an opportunity here to just talk about things that I think are really important medically For people to know, like how to protect yourself, what to do if the condom breaks. And I started making a few of those videos and seeing they performed really well, and people were really appreciative of being given this information that maybe they weren't being given anywhere else and couldn't ask about anywhere else, or didn't even know enough to know they should ask anywhere else. And I think that kind of showed me how important it was and how that niche was really untouched. I think there's lots of people who are doing it. On a much bigger scale now than I am, and probably much better than I do, because I still try to focus a lot on pregnancy and and period education and all kinds of things, kind of not just sex ed. But uh, yeah, it was. I think it was TikTok that kind of pushed me into that.
0: Mm. And so now, when you're creating your content, who do you sort of envision in your mind as your target audience?
1: Um, it varies by platform and what content type I'm making. Um, In general, it's anyone, you know, reproductive age person with two X chromosomes uh, and kind of niche down depending on the topic. I think early on in my content creation, it was really important for me to like really narrow that down and focus on an individual, like smaller group. But my voice now... I'm lucky enough to have a fairly big platform where I can kind of speak to a whole bunch of different groups and they can choose which content that they think is applicable to them. But as a general rule, it's it's reproductive age people who um yeah, who are female or assigned female at birth.
0: What do you think you would say are maybe the primary pieces of misinformation that you're constantly coming up against? Oh my
1: gosh. Um so women in A5 Health is such a treasure trove of money-making misinformation that it's just a revolving door of the same kind of repeated uh, fear-mongering is probably the best way to put it. Uh, The current one that people are kind of focused on is villainizing hormonal contraceptives. And you always run into a problem with this because they make really good points, Right. So so I always try to when we debunk these and this is one of my favorite things to do is long form debunking of these things that you see on the Internet is the fact that these people make some good points when they talk about this does not justify what they are doing with those good points. So we can acknowledge there are side effects to birth control and some of them in certain situations can be extremely dangerous Obviously, for the most part, birth control and hormonal contraception is relatively safe, particularly when compared to pregnancy. But yeah, that's a valid point that maybe we don't always talk about the risks enough. Maybe people aren't informed enough. Valid points. But we cannot take that and go, and because of all that that I just told you, that means hormonal contraception is bad and you should go off of it because it is going to kill you. And I have this $800 e-course telling you how to get off birth control and supplement yourself with all of the nutritional supplements that I sell. So that's kind of what you run into is people kind of, I think, capitalizing on people's fears and taking advantage of people who feel like they have not been listened to or helped by the medical system at large, a true thing that happens, but then are being taken advantage of by people who are truly for-profit with no regulation whatsoever.
0: I've seen a few of those accounts on TikTok where they sort of make a claim that they are someone or they sort of like have a specialization in something but with no um, qualifications, which is quite interesting. Uh, thing. Yeah, so
1: there's uh, there's all kinds of these. and. I know them when I see them, like, immediately. I'm like, oh, that's that's one of these, like, people that made up their certification or whatever. But I don't think it's very easy for the general public to know what's real and what's not. So a good example is there's a lot of people who call themselves hormone coaches or hormone experts. And I went into a deep dive one day of, like, okay, they all have to be doing something that they decide like this makes them qualified, right? Because most people I don't think would just go on and like put it there if they didn't have something they could say like, oh, see, I, I really am. And I, there's several places, but the most popular one I could find for becoming a hormone expert or hormone coach, which is so weird, right? Because like, who's a hormone expert? An endocrinologist, like not even me, like certainly not these people. And that's a whole subspecialty of internal medicine. Like you do you know, uni and then medical school for four years, so eight years, and then you do three years of internal medicine residency and then three years of endocrinology fellowship. Then you can be a hormone expert. These people go on and this nutrition guy, like, made a course about hormones, and interestingly, usually when they say hormones, it's limited to, like, testosterone, thyroid, estrogen, progesterone, and cortisol, like, five of your what 40 plus hormones. And they take this course that costs a few hundred bucks and then they get a certificate and they're a hormone expert. It's it's so stupid. Um but the general public can't identify what's they can't. I mean it's not like they don't have the capacity. Like certainly everybody is smart enough to figure this out if they want. It's just when people are constantly misrepresenting their credentials or making them sound better than they are, the general public doesn't necessarily know that that's a red flag. I do because I do this all the time, but I don't fault anyone for not seeing that.
0: Would you have any advice for people who are using social media and perhaps finding accounts like these, how they can maybe spot someone who doesn't have the appropriate qualifications to speak to these subjects?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, anybody who is saying things like hormone coach, health coach, uh, not that there's people who are health coaches who are, just giving general healthy advice, right? But then there's people, I think a good rule of thumb is if someone is telling you something on the internet, if it sounds uh, real extreme or like, oh my God, how has somebody been keeping this secret from me my whole life? Or, oh wow, this could be like a massive conspiracy. All the doctors are hiding this. It's probably exaggerated and meaningfully exaggerated in order to have some kind of gain. So anytime you see something like that, the first thing you should do is Who's telling me this information why were they tell me this what do they have to gain from it so you look at the information does it sound a bit exaggerated it probably is go to their page are they selling something or are they like trying to get your email put in to get your like so they can send you marketing stuff or newsletters is there something that they gain a profit monetarily if you believe whatever it was that they said in that video Nine times out of 10, your intuition is going to be right. That was an appropriately placed red flag. And you should reconsider if you really put a lot of stake into mm-hmm. listening to that.
0: And so your platforms um, are doing amazing. They've, you've got you know, 1.2 million followers on TikTok and 1.3 million, I think, on YouTube. And what do you think are the reasons that people are finding your content and staying with it rather than sort of dipping in and out um, as they come across it? <laughs> Yeah,
1: I think, I think I have found a, a bit of a unique niche and balance in that I am a bit less formal and more um, willing to share about my personal life and journey than I think a lot of doctors are on the internet. And not to say that that's a good or bad thing. I'm kind of an open book and people have, you know, that has been used against me in the past and has definitely not always been. positive thing for me it doesn't make life always super easy but I think my like whole thing when I started educating on the internet is I want to be like not like the doctor when you go to the doctor and you're talking to a doctor or whatever I want it to be like you have a friend who happens to be a gynecologist and we're going out to grab a cup of coffee and then oh While we're having coffee, you just happen to go, oh, hey, I had a pap smear the other day and it was abnormal. Can you tell me about that? And I've always tried to approach my content from kind of that level and with an additional layer of just really relying on the science, not having people just have to trust me, but backing up what I'm saying with either quoting articles, linking articles, putting them on screen, things that lend to my credibility. And I think that that is something that people really value. Some people really value anyway.
0: And what kind of responses have you had to the content that you're putting out?
1: You know, most of the time, I think I have really positive responses. People are very happy. They have learned, you know, a lot. I think the biggest compliment that I can get is somebody, you know, with regards to, um, I guess, uh, more contentious issues like uh, the abortion topic, somebody saying, oh, you made me really think about this. Like That's the biggest compliment because I don't wanna tell you how to believe. That's what I feel like I blame in my life for meaning that it took me so long to unlearn a bunch of things is that somebody told me how to believe. I wanna tell you how I believe and why, and then I want you to think about it. Um, With regards to like the purely medical information or um, education that I do, Somebody telling me like, oh, I was really scared to go to the gynecologist. I was scared to get a smear or whatever, but now you're here, you're a little bit of a weirdo, you're kinda normal, and oh maybe you guys are just like actual normal people and now I'm not so scared to go, or you taught me something that encouraged me to take control of my health or whatever it was. So I, I think those are the two ways that I like when people respond. And then I certainly, you know, get my fair share of criticism, a lot of it warranted um, and a lot of it not that's something that you just have to learn how to navigate. When criticism is presented to me in a way that is um, fair and reasonable, I try to take that and and learn from it. But then, you know, there's certainly times where it's anything but that.
0: I like that you describe yourself as doing um, edutainment. Um, And is there a sort of, do you have sort of guide rails for yourself when creating content in terms of like a framework for how you want to structure it or how to make it particularly engaging?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably more applicable on YouTube where I do longer form things, but I have, when I started my YouTube channel, I intentionally went down like these rabbit holes of what kind of content does well on YouTube. And I became a genuine fan of a bunch of different YouTube creators who were not in the medical space. Um, And at the time there, I mean, there were certainly a few big medical YouTubers, um, who I looked up to, but I think there's a lot more now. And I just started trying to kind of dissect, like, what are these people doing that works and how are they successful at it? And then I tried to figure out how can I translate that into the topics that I liked to talk about and that I am equipped to talk about. And then the other thing I do is, we would all be really um, stupid to pretend that all of these people who spread misinformation are idiots, right? They are incredibly good at marketing their their mission or whatever they believe. So, I actually follow a lot of people who share a lot of information that I think is really bad because I think that it's really important that I look at the techniques that they are using to share this information and that I take some of those and use them for myself. So sometimes I have people who follow me who get a little bit frustrated. They're like, oh, you're using clickbait in your thumbnails or you know, I thought you were gonna be you know, saying something negative about this, but then you weren't. I'm like, that's the point. I need people to click on my videos who would click on the inflammatory videos that these other people are making so that I get to them first or at least I can be a voice of reason on the other side.
0: It's a great strategy. And given the breadth of what you what you talk about and all the myth-busting that you're doing, do you ever find it difficult to switch off?
1: Yeah, I think that for sure. I think that that was more of an issue, probably, it was fine for about the first six or 12 months. And then as my social media platforms began to grow, it was really hard to disconnect from that and, like, put myself back into the real world like my head was always going and i have had over the past year and a half or 2 years to really intentionally take a few steps back with regards to how directly accessible i am to everybody and i i still am very accessible as far as people can dm me i control all of my pages i read a lot of those but i you know the first thing was like i'm not arguing with people in comments anymore this is Not worth it, I cannot respond to an Instagram comment about something that I said and argue with someone because my goal is to educate as as many people as possible And if I'm spending an hour arguing with someone and it just raises my blood pressure, that's not worth it. So I stopped doing that um, and just started blocking people more freely. And, you know, think of that what you will. But to me, I was like, I'm not letting people come into my house and scream at me. If you want to stand out on the porch and scream at me or go into your house and, you know, pick up your phone and scream at me through the phone, that's fine. You can do it from your own platform, but you're not going to do it here. And that was a really um, important boundary for me. And then Some other things are just kind of focusing more on platforms that are me sharing the information in a less, you know, this, I guess, is a bit contrary to what I said a little bit earlier, but in a less personable uh, space and way just to protect myself a little bit. Um, And that's been helpful. So I don't think I have as much of a problem with that probably in the past year. Um, But that was a a big problem that really affected my mental health and physical health um, at some points in the past.
0: Absolutely. And in terms, because you're, you know, you're so busy, you have a family, you have your, you know, work in the clinic, and then you have your social media too, what what drives you to keep going?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm just really, I'm really passionate about what I do. I, I think it's important and I get, you know, emails all the time about how somebody's, you know, health was helped. And I start thinking about, you know, how many people could I educate on HPV vaccines in the course of my clinical career if I was working full-time and probably the amount that, you know, uh, 20% of a single video reaches, if that. So I think just the grand scale of how I can make a difference is really motivating. Um, I make good money doing it now. I, I didn't even know when I started my YouTube channel that you could make money on YouTube. I just started putting things there because it was searchable and I was tired of putting things on Instagram and they just go away in 24 hours. Someone asked me the same question a week later and I can't link back to it and they can't search my page for it. So that was why I started putting things on YouTube in the beginning. Um, But yeah, now, I mean, it's a job. It's a job that has a a lot of time put into it. And now I also have several employees. I mean, we have three people on our payroll at this point and I can't just like... They they would need me to keep showing up and doing my job too. So, um, yeah, I work clinically three days a week, and I work on uh, online stuff two days a week, um, and that's a decent balance, I think.
0: And last, I just wanted to ask if there is anything that we haven't spoken about that's on your mind, or a question that you would really love if I if I asked.
1: I don't think so. I think we've covered a lot of it, and I hope that you know people kind of can listen to my story and be empowered to take control of their own beliefs and really dissect what it is they believe and why. And, um, yeah, I just, I hope people have as much of a passion for learning and science-based education as I do. And I hope that that's what I get across when I make content on the internet.
0: We really hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. If you want to find Dr. Jones online, you can find her at, at Mama Dr. Jones across Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. And before we sign off, we want to remind you to check out our book available at sexandspace.com forward slash book or simply search for The Organ Education Forgot on Amazon. It's also available as a downloadable PDF for only 8 New Zealand dollars if you would prefer a digital copy. Don't forget to leave a like, follow, comment or review wherever you're tuning in from. Your support really does mean the world to us. Until next time, safe travels and see you on the next episode.